Jason Owen here, stoking your zeal for the things of God in Christ. To tithe or not to tithe, that is the question. Tithing is an ancient principle. It's not limited to the Jewish people or the Bible. For ages, many peoples and cultures have set apart and given 10% of their grain, wheat, animals, finances, spices, and more to their gods and goddesses, whether that per, that 10% represented an offering or a required amount, it has been referred to as a tithe. And the act of giving that tithe, that 10%, was called tithing. Tithes and offerings are no doubt well-known words among churchgoers today. But quite frankly, the mention of money or giving when associated with church or what's identified as the church can really be a sore subject for believers and unbelievers alike. In a day and age where faith preachers, so-called, are seen on television in their fancy clothes and their expensive jewelry, proclaiming that a person may benefit by sending their largest financial donation, often referred to as a love gift or a faith offering to their so-called ministry, which, by the way, so desperately needs your support, it's no wonder why unbelievers are turned off and they're not interested in Christianity or what's often portrayed as Christianity. We have been forewarned of those by Paul, the apostle, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5, who supposed that godliness is a means of gain, and he says, from such withdraw yourself. But what about concerned and faithful believers who are interested in pleasing Jesus Christ with all of their possessions, including their monies, is tithing a New Testament principle. Are Christians biblically bound to give a tithe, a 10% of their finances to the church? Is tithing the same thing as an offering? Well, I encourage you to search the scriptures for yourself. Don't, don't just go along with the flow. Don't just do it because your church tells you to do so and accept something just because it's been done that way since, well, for a long time. See what God expects of believers in Christ and let God be true, but every man a liar. Let's look at some Old Testament examples of giving. Soon after his battlefield victory, Abraham visited Melchizedek, it says, for he was the priest of the Most High, in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. Melchizedek blessed Abraham and assured him that it was God, the possessor of heaven and earth, right? God owns heaven and earth, who delivered his enemies into his hand. And this same Abraham, who left the land of Ur and followed an often invisible God, contrary to his homeland's idols of stone and wood and metal, he gave a tithe of what he had to Melchizedek, God's high priest. There was no law telling him to do so. There was nothing requiring him to do that. He simply chose to do it. And then there was Abraham's grandson, Jacob. He had an unusual dream of a ladder reaching from earth to heaven. And there were angels going up and down on it in Genesis chapter 22, verses 10 through 22. God stood above the ladder and he promised to bless Jacob with that land and to be with him 
and his descendants forever. Jacob was so excited to hear that in verses 16 through 17 that he took a stone that he used as his pillow and he declared it to be a pillar to God. He declared that place to be what he called God's house, Bethel, in verses 19 and 22. He believed that God would provide for him, so he promised from that day forth to give a tithe, to give a tenth of all he had, of all that God gave him. And this too was before the law or the Ten Commandments. Quite some time after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God delivered the Jewish people from Egypt's bondage through the leadership of Moses. And using Moses as a mediator, God gave the law of Moses to the Jews, beginning with the Ten Commandments and resulting in over 600 commandments and ordinances, including a very thorough priesthood complete with very specific regulations and more. The fourth book of Moses, called Leviticus, gives every detail pertaining to the Jewish priesthood and the people concerning how they were expected to worship their God. But the last verse of that great book specifically says, quote, These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. Leviticus 27, verse 34. So that law and the commandments, including, including tithing, giving 10%, not just of, of one thing, but of their grain, of their wheat, of their animals, uh, that was all commanded in Leviticus 27, verse 34. It was given to the children of Israel. If God is the possessor of heaven and earth, does he need anything from us? Well, why would he have the Jews tithe? I believe that the fifth book of Moses, it's called Deuteronomy, it gives us good reasons as to why God would have the Jews tithe. You really got to go and look it up on your own. Read Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 through 28, chapter 14, verses 21 to 26. The Lord told the Jews to, quote, go to the place which the Lord God chooses, and end quote there, verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 25. It was his desire that they would bring all of their sacrifices, all of their burnt offerings, and their tithes to worship at the place where he had chosen for his name to abide. And once they got there, these things would be set apart and used to rejoice before the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. The whole point of that, of bringing their offerings, their tithes, and their burnt offerings and their sacrifices. The point was they were to rejoice together with their sons and daughters, their maidservants, and the Levites in the chosen place. It's also written that if their journey to the chosen place was too far, the Israelites were allowed to exchange their tithe, to exchange their grain and their produce, etc., for money, which is interesting because we often think of tithe and 10% as money that's then turned into donuts and coffee and things that we want to use in church. In this case, they were allowed to exchange their tithe, which was in the form of grain and, and produce and so on, for money. And then they were told, spend that money for whatever your heart desires. 
with the intention that they would have a good time together as a people. Isn't that great? God didn't need their money. They needed his money to be used in a good way. So long as they were not forsaking the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, or the widow, God was pleased. The New Testament seems to affirm this when the Apostle Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he's worse than an unbeliever. God had to make something clear. He didn't want anyone to be forgotten or forsaken. Whether traveling to the place that God had chosen, or had they finally arrived, God wanted people to take care of each other. The tithes were to provide for the Levites who had no inheritance. They were used to rejoice, you and your household, it's written. They were used to feed the strangers, the fatherless, and the widows. And they were used in the process of learning how to fear the Lord. Deuteronomy 14, verses 21 to 26. In fact, the next chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 15, he continues his thoughts on generosity and giving to the poor. But did the New Testament saints give 10%? You won't find a biblical account of first century Christians giving 10%. Even though the early church was mostly Jewish, there's no mention of tithing in the New Testament church. Christians weren't limited to 10%. The first Christians, listen, they gave generously. They gave according to the need, and they gave according to their ability. In Acts chapter 2 verses 42 to 47, Acts chapter 11 verses 28 and 30. I'll read Acts chapter 4 verse 32. He says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. It's pretty cool. And while there's no command in the New Testament that Christians are to tithe, that's not to say that Christians didn't give. I mean, just consider the last passage I read. They, no one said that any of the things they owned belonged to them. They, they shared what they had. It was all like common property. They often gave above and beyond what was probably expected. We read about the very first converts to the faith in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. He says... Now all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as anyone had need. Acts 4, verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. They had all things in common. In Acts chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. It's fantastic, the early church in motion. There is talk in the New Testament of collecting money in the church 
But that is, other than the passages I just read there, where it's the early believers gathering their money to share with one another, to take care of one another, there was talk of a particular gift, a very specific collection. Among the early church, there was a prophet named Agabus. And Agabus prophesied that there was going to be a great famine in the world which happened, it's written, in the days of Claudius Caesar. Caesar, And it's written there in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30. It says, The disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. And this they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Saul, also known as Paul the Apostle. Paul was very active in collecting this offering called the gift for the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. You can read about that, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 4, chapter 9, verse 5. What better way for the Gentile church to show their love to their Jewish believers in Christ, who were initially hesitant to accept the Gentile believers (laughs) as Christians, than by giving a gift in time of need? And this collection was to be done regularly, it was to be done according to one's ability, and it was to be done willingly. It was to be done regularly. It's written in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1-3. through 3. It says, Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, Sunday, right, let each of you set something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. This collection was to be done according to one's ability, as is written in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 13 and 14. It says, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, and their abundance may supply your lack, that there be equality. I love that. That collection was also to be done willingly. It says, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. All that talk has to do with this special gift that was collected on behalf of the Gentile churches to give to the church in Judea. Notice here, though, that Paul really didn't want to have anything to do with personally, like singly, single-handedly uh, handling, handling this gift unless he had to. He didn't want his ministry to be associated with money or greed or to give the appearance of anything that would cause anyone else to not want to hear the gospel as if he was peddling the word of God. Second Corinthians 11 verse 9, he speaks to that. He worked really hard to support himself, even as a tent maker. In Acts 18 verses 2 and 3, we read about that. He motivated people to give uh, by giving himself, uh, just as Christ gave himself for the body of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9. Paul recognized that ministry meant just that, to minister, to give without the expectation of getting anything in return. 
And he did help administer that gift to the church in Jerusalem, but with the support and company of other brothers in Christ. You can read about that in Acts chapter 11, verses 29 and 30, chapter 12, verse 25, Romans chapter 15, verses 25 to 27, Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, verse 10, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 2, well, verse 2, and 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 give us great uh, detail about that gift. Think about this. When it comes to the church, Jesus Christ has not commissioned his people to build some religious machine to become a corporate-like institution requiring its members' money content only to call itself the church while it takes in more than it gives away. And when speaking of church as a place of worship, it really should be emphasized that church buildings were non-existent until the second century. What then, or we should say, who then is the church? We the people are the church. We are the body of Christ. The the Apostle Paul said, we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Romans 12 verses 4 and 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 12. We are not a brick-walled building complete with fancy pews, an altar, and the need to keep its founders employed and the bills paid. We are we have to remember we, we the church, are a living, breathing, spirit-filled body of believers with a mission. It's an awesome thing that we as Christians, as Americans, uh, in the church in America, the, we're free to worship what, where, and when we wish. And it is a blessing that we may gather together as Christians, right, to worship our God corporately. Thank God. Thank the Lord for this blessing. But many Christians throughout the world don't have this freedom. They worship the Lord in secret without the benefit of a church building. And yet, these believers are among the most spiritual in the collective body of Christ. Do they lack pews, pulpits, and baptismals? Yeah, they just might. But are they any less of a church? Absolutely not. These believers prove that the church is more than a structure, but a community. The early church, for example, met in people's homes. They often met house to house in Acts chapter 20, verse 20. They met in Paul's house, Acts 28, verses 30 and 31. They met in Philemon's house in Philemon, verse 2. They met in Aquila and Priscilla's house in Romans 16, verses 3 through 5. In Nympha's house, Colossians 4, verse 15, and so on. Uh, again, in 2 John, verse 10. A house, and more specifically the home, is quite capable of facilitating that family-like community feel the church ought to have. This is not to say that we should refrain from renting or constructing places where believers may worship together corporately. But it should be because the church has outgrown the living room that it seeks to meet elsewhere. The bottom line is this. Christ has not called his church to be consumed with earthly buildings where financial needs are prevalent 
and the preaching of the word is scarce. So what's the point? Where once the early church met in people's homes, many believers now have the opportunity to worship together in the church of their choice, right? This will, however, require money. There's no way around it. This means plenty of chairs, space, lights, bathrooms, and more. That is, unless there's a house big enough to accommodate more than 20 people or so. What then will be our attitude toward money? I prefer the attitude of the late pastor of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, Chuck Smith. He said, where God guides, God provides. And Pastor Chuck believed that a ministry is one that ministers. It gives. And when a ministry begins to take for the sake of its existence, then it is no longer a ministry. In other words, yes, a ministry might need money, but if it is of God, He will put it upon the people's hearts to give what is necessary. And when a ministry becomes too needy, one should prayerfully consider whether that ministry is necessary in God's eyes or not. If we enjoy our place of corporate worship, and if we want our pastors who may devote devote more, if not all of their time, to study the Word of God, it's going to require some giving on our part. But we ought to be sure that it's a ministry led of God, and we should always be cheerful givers. Right? The Apostle Paul said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 11 and 14, he says, If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So we have a responsibility to support those who are truly committed to preaching the word of God. And we should help our pastors and our teachers and our evangelists and anyone else who is especially devoted to this work in many ways. And one of the ways we can support them is financially, whether it's called a tithe or an offering, whether it's 10% or more than 10%. Well, what about those who can't afford to give an offering? And what if giving 10% would leave a family penniless? Should that family give, quote, in faith, (laughs) end quote? Maybe the Lord would have that family give, but maybe not. We know the Lord would prefer that there would be no lack in the body of Christ, right? We read about that in Acts 4, verse 32 to 35. But he may not want us to give any money. He might just want us to pay our bills. Wouldn't the Lord be more glorified by paying our debts than our being delinquent because we gave to the church? And I think there are times when giving to our church might be sinful. For example, just like it's written, if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his own household... He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, Paul said in 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. God is calling us to be wise stewards. He's created the institution of the family long before he created the church. In fact, within the family, within the husband and wife relationship, we find the strongest, 
model of Christ and the church. And we know that Christ has taught us to nourish our families first. Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 30. We may have all heard those stories of folks who said, you know, we gave our 10% and we didn't have much money and and then we got this check in the mail and it was just what we needed. And I think those stories are wonderful. Um, but I I think that sometimes that may happen. Those things may happen maybe in spite of or <laughs> maybe the Lord, you know, sending money to take care of that family, uh, to provide for them, to, you know, just proof that he is God and provider. Um, But I do think that a family may really best glorify the Lord by giving as they are able, um, as God prospers them. And God is glorified in our paying our bills and not being in debt. God's greatest commandment is that we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we love our neighbors as we love ourselves. What he commanded the Jews to do in the law by setting apart their tithes, we in the body of Christ do in love because he first loved us. As individual members of one grand body, we give as we can that we might rejoice with our entire household and care for our pastors and the strangers and the fatherless. A creation altogether different than Israel. The church is filled with the Spirit of God that we might love as Jesus loved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And God demonstrated his love by giving And that's why we give or do anything at all. We love. When God loved, he gave. He gave his son. Pray to the Lord. Ask him what you should give. For all that you have has come from him. Everything you have is his anyway. And he may ask you to give money, but he may ask you to give your time to a neighbor. He may ask you to give an ear to listen a shoulder to cry on, or to financially help your church and pastor, whatever it is, offer it cheerfully. And if you can't, then don't give. Check your heart. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need your money. He's simply giving you the opportunity to be used by using what he's giving you. The point of this is to let God be true. Let God be true and and see that he is glorified by reading and keeping and doing his word. Please pray about these things. Study for yourself. Don't take my word for it, but be like the Bereans in Acts 17 verse 11, and that they received the word with all readiness, and they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so.